from our respective offices and dining rooms in Washington, D.C., and from the end of Chris's bed in London, this is Everything About Hydrogen. Today, we'll be speaking with Pierre-Etienne Franck from Air Liquide and Stefan Herbst from Toyota Europe. Chris and Patrick, how are you guys doing today? Well, it's a little dark where I am right now. <laughs> For some of our uh, audience, we're uh, having to make do with uh, IT challenges in the time of Corona. <laughs> Cut us a little bit of slack here, Chris. <laughs> Patrick, how are things in your part of Washington, D.C.? Uh, great, sunny. I can see random people skateboarding outside my window right now, which seems an ill advice. Yeah, yeah, well, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> Let's focus on the, the subject of the podcast, shall we? What's been going on in the in the hydrogen world since we last spoke? It's been quite some time. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it, it's been quite a surprisingly busy time. There's been a lot of fairly large amount of sort of work around various projects that seems to have been uh, announced and underway. So that's all been quite interesting to kind of see where that will all go. They just announced a billion dollar plus project in China, uh, where the, when the local government is investing in a range of different hydrogen uh, technologies, mostly mobility, but some, I think, stationary fuel cell uh, units as well. Um, we've been deprived, unfortunately, of uh, Japan's chance to show off a hydrogen Olympic torch and the hydrogen village. Um, but I'm sure that will come uh, in a year's time when they've rescheduled it. So we'll get to see all of it there. Um, but otherwise, I guess the big announcement was Heisen, which is a, effectively a fuel cell truck manufacturing business that um, is uh, launched in the US and is potentially a competitor to Nikola, also providing fuel cell buses, working uh, and actually doing some work in Europe, uh, UK, Australia and North America um, using Horizon fuel cells. So that's also been kind of interesting. What, what would you add, Patrick? What have I missed? Uh, I would point out something there very quickly, uh, Chris. Shoot. That was a shameless, shameless plug for the Hyzon Protium tie-up, I think. Oh, I thought I'd done quite a good job not to talk about that, to be honest. But yeah, no, as you mentioned it, as you, as you team me <laughs> up for it. Um, yeah, no, it was, it's been very good. So as you and some of the listeners may know, um, Hyzon and Protium um, released an MOU um, earlier this month. Uh, well, in March, actually, sorry. I think that's uh, time does fly on these podcasts. But yeah, in March. Um so that was really positive, and uh, you know we're looking forward to working with uh, them and with uh, a variety of other really interesting companies in the hydrogen space to try and get some of these innovative technologies out there and uh, get them into people's hands, so suppliers can get off the diesel trucks and uh, move on to something with zero emissions. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're excited to hear about that. Excited for Proteum. Excited for Hyzon. Uh, Patrick, I apologize. I cut you off once again shamelessly. So, what's been going on in your world on the hydrogen side? No, nothing. It's okay. <laughs> I think, yeah, like we've seen some of the the big kind of reports. I think I think Chris kind of covered all of them, which demonstrates he has plenty of time on his hands. I think we've got a, a number of reports that have come out recently. I think a Bloomberg report came out, and then there's a few other kind of roadmaps. Um, interestingly, it seems that we're still going to have uh, some delayed conferences. I'm, I'm seeing some optimistic uh, schedulers in our in, in my inbox anyway. So who knows? Maybe we'll be back on this road pretty quick. Hydrogen conferences. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. That's wild. Who, which co- hydrogen conference? Which one? Is on? You tell. I'm not breaching any of those. This is this is <laughs> proprietary information. Secret societies. Actually, the Rocky Mountain Illuminati, as far as I'm concerned. Exactly right. Chris, we've got a couple members of the Hydrogen Council on today. A couple of big names. You want to you want to take us through why we should uh, be interested to hear what they have to say? Uh, sure. So, I mean, for those of you who, who aren't aware, the Hydrogen Council is um, a global stakeholder group of industrial partners, manufacturers, investors, and uh, developers, uh, including a number of uh, energy majors as well. That was assembled in 2017. Um, I believe it originally came out of a meeting at Davos uh, in the World Economic Forum. And really um, what the Hydrogen Council has done is it's acted as this very powerful global uh, lobbying and research group for hydrogen and hydrogen-related technologies. Their report, Hydrogen Scaling Up, that they launched in, I believe it was 2017, 
was, you know, a report that kind of actually gave people a roadmap for what hydrogen could be and was the uh, report that talked about a $2.6 trillion hydrogen economy by 2050, talked about hydrogen's role as a potential energy carrier and potentially taking up, I think, 18% of global total energy consumption by 2050. So that really woke people up. And and since then, the Hydrogen Council really has probably been the best known um, of the various hydrogen lobbying groups globally out there. Uh, certainly the sort of most prestigious one and uh, really a voice that uh, global leaders uh, listen to very seriously. So it's really exciting to have on the show tonight, um, you know, two of the founding members of that association, Toyota and Air Liquide, to come and talk a little bit about it um, and why they why their organizations got involved with the consortium. We're spoiled a little bit for the show this week. As Chris spoke to the the Hydrogen Council is a is a very prominent and and, and broadly recognized organization. I think one of the the more interesting uh, aspects of it is that you know all of its members are large enough companies in their respective sectors, um, and you also have a very very broad spread of sectors covered. So you get a lot of the different use cases, a little uh, you know a little bit of a, a differing kind of perspective on how to engage with the uh, the kind of future hydrogen economy and where this all fits together. And I think the other aspect of the, that 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 brings which is particularly valuable is that you get some uh, some of the the regional sensitivities and and differences in markets being represented when you when you look at this group. So if you pull together or you pull pull out one of the reports you'll see an awful lot of areas covered. You see a pretty pretty comprehensive view of what what a hydrogen economy globally could look like and uh, as such, it's been a very, very useful uh, resource and forum for for accelerating uh, this work and, and this effort. Excellent. I think that was a fantastic two cents, Patrick. With that said, uh, are you guys happy with us uh, trying to get uh, Pierre and Stefan on the line? Sure. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Hello, everybody. Um, good to have you all on the call this morning. I'm going to, um, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, ask our two fantastic guests today, Pierre Tien and Stefan, to introduce themselves and talk a little bit about uh, their role and what they do within their respective companies. Pierre Tien, if I could ask you first to talk a little bit about your role at Eliquid, that'd be fantastic. And then, Stefan, if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about what you do uh, with Toyota Europe, that'd be fantastic. Good afternoon or good morning. Um, I'm Pierre Tiencran. I'm a vice president at Air Liquide. I'm in charge of the hydrogen energy business line. And I'm also the uh, funding and the hydrogen uh, council secretary. My role at Air Liquide is basically to make sure that we steer and shape those new markets coming with the energy transitions for which hydrogen is going to become a, a key vector and to make sure that the liquid is properly positioned to capture those and to define where and which uh, it's part of the value chain for which customers, in which geographies, which partnerships, and so on. And before that, I've been doing many different things, managing uh, many different activities, a portfolio of all the advanced technologies for the group, and before I was managing more the core businesses uh, of the group in uh, several different positions. Yeah, then I continue. My name is Stefan Herbst. I'm Technical General Manager in Toyota Motor Europe, responsible for the hydrogen strategy of Toyota in Europe. And I'm also actively involved in the Hydrogen Council activities. I joined Toyota in 2005, at that time in environmental strategy. So I had various functions also in Japan. And since I'm back from Japan in 2012, I became responsible for our hydrogen activities here in Europe. Great. So I will jump in with the first question, which is going, we're going to split it into two for you guys. The first question is pretty broad. What we're looking to know and what our listeners would really be interested to hear from you guys. And Pierre Etienne, I'm going to turn it over to you for this first part is uh, what exactly is the Hydrogen Council? And then a follow on question to that for both of you would be why did both of your respective companies feel it was important to become a member of the Hydrogen Council Consortium? Maybe I'm going to start with a little bit of history because it gives a flavor of why and what's the role of the Council. It's, it dates back to mid 2016, where I and a couple of other companies, including, of course, Toyota, but also Shell, Anglo American, 
were trying to find a way to make sure that in the ongoing wave of electrification of transport, the battery wave would not be alone and that people would remind that next to, I would say, Elon Musk as a guru for the world electrification, there was another view of the systemic role that a molecule like hydrogen could play. So we came together with those companies and thanks to my CEO early endorsement of this initiative, we said we need, in front of very entrepreneurs like, we need to gather the CEOs of very large companies coming from the different sectors, from different continents, to show that hydrogen is there to stay and is going to be a formidable vector for the energy transition. And so we gathered together 13, we started with 13 companies, couple of oil and gas, namely Total and Shell, uh, of course, the key OEMs involved with the technology, to start with Toyota, of course, who was the first chair with us, uh, but also Hyundai, BMW, Daimler, and a couple of, and Honda, uh, and also a couple of technology companies. And we started in Davos and we said, guys, don't forget hydrogen. Hydrogen is going to have a far more fundamental role to play in the ecosystem than just batteries or other technologies. And then along the way, over the last three years, we basically built the council as a CEO-led initiative, trying to be the voice, the global voice of hydrogen, and trying to make sure the whole ecosystems of policy makers, think tanks, key energy experts understand that if you want the energy transition to be seriously in action, you will need hydrogen part of it. You will need it because you need to store and manage intermittent energy. You will need it because you will need to transport long-term either fossil energy or renewable energy in a decarbonated way, which is hydrogen-rich. And third, you will need it because you will need to decarbonize the downstream sectors on a couple of those, the R2 abate ones, basically, heavy transportation, heavy logistics, but also um, uh, out to abate uh, industry sectors like steel, glass, cement, petrochemicals will need a new way to use heat, and that will be with hydrogen. So we gathered from 13 into now 81 members uh, so as to basically build the vision, the substance, and the arguments to explain why hydrogen needs to be part of any key policy making in the energy sector. And when we started, we started very rapidly with a big study called Hydrogen Scaling Up, showing that for the first time, we looked at the broad vision from now to 2030 and 2050, and that if we were to seriously try to abate all those energy uh, consuming sectors, hydrogen would represent up to 18% of the world energy demand and would contribute to abate around six gigaton of CO2. And thanks to that, we basically triggered a lot of other studies and things from many other NGOs or think tanks of official uh, institutions like the International Energy Agency, for example. And they all basically now have acknowledged that it will not be possible to achieve the energy transition without hydrogen at its core first. Second, since we've created the council, we've, we've grown numbers, as you have seen, with many different companies from different sectors. But also, we now have around 18 countries that have a real hydrogen-related policy for energy transitions. They represent themselves 70% of the GDP. So it's probably not enough, but it's seriously moving. Over the last year or so, We've said now that we have basically set the tone on what's the hydrogen role, we need to substantiate how to make it happen. And this is a cost roadmap, and we'll discuss about that later. But also we need to get not only the sector members, but also the investment community to join. And so we have started to engage into the Hydrogen Council financial investors so that they get a view of what's coming, which is the next decade, and the decade that comes is going to be COVID or not COVID should be the hydrogen decade. And that's what the council is there, is to make sure these decades 
come true, along with all uh, the key national or regional organizations fostering the sector interest. Thank you very much, Pierre Etienne. Uh, Stefan, I wonder if we could turn it over to you and, and also get, uh, I think Pierre Etienne's covered quite a bit of, of the rationale for joining, but I would love to also hear from you about uh, Toyota's view and, and its rationale and, and why it thought it was important, why Toyota thought it was important to be a, a part of the Hydrogen Council. Thank you very much. Actually, let me go back to the year 1992. That is the year when we started to develop our fuel cell technology. By the way, almost the same year when we started uh, development of Prius. Over 20 years, we improved the technology, we reduced the cost, and then eventually introduced the car in 2014 in Japan and in 2015 in, the, in Europe and in the United States. When we introduced the Mirai in those markets, it became quickly evident that we need to build up completely new ecosystems. We need to define a way how to produce hydrogen, how to transport it to stations, how to build up and operate hydrogen stations, and how do we take uh, customers, policymakers uh, with us. It also became evident that hydrogen is not only uh, beneficial for transport, but also for many other industries. The foundation of the Hydrogen Council is exactly reflecting this reality. It brings together, as Pietjen said, uh, different industries, different sectors, governments, and uh, financial industry. We have to recognize that one company or even one sector alone can't leverage the full potential of hydrogen. That is why we joined and uh, we have co-chaired the Hydrogen Council in 2017. If I may add one thing to what Stefan just said, nobody can achieve hydrogen economy alone. Uh, and that's a fundamental difference from, I would say, the battery electrification wave where you can have the feeling that you can start alone. Here you need a kind of a congregation of different sectors to make it work because it is a systemic play. And so it's also very symbolic or symptomatic of what is or should be a new industrial era with the energy transition is that you need to move into a more collaborative world where each sector is getting ready to shift to a new way of developing and consuming its energy so that the whole dynamic is working. If you have only one player moving alone, it's not going to work. And so as a liquid, as we are just a part, a very tiny part of the whole thing, just we have a lot of the technologies, but we don't master, we don't have the investment capacities. We wanted to make sure jointly with our friends from Toyota and also from Hyundai that basically all the other pieces were getting together at the enough, at the highest level so that the visibility of the technology, the visibility of, to the teams is, would bring some emulation into the development of the, of the, of the sectors and the markets. So one of the things I guess I wanted to ask uh, Stefan and Pierre Etienne, and maybe we start with you, Stefan, is one of the things that quite often comes up is this idea that hydrogen is a panacea for all energy challenges. And uh, I think that's because a number of people have wanted to push hydrogen, obviously, for various reasons as that type of solution. But, you know, I think there's probably more nuance to it than that. And so what I wanted to ask was, where do your respective companies see the greatest prospects for hydrogen as an energy solution in the next five to 10 years? And maybe we'll start, as I say, with Stefan and then Pierre Etienne, if you can take over, that would be great. I think there is uh, no panacea for all energy challenges. The energy transition requires all sources and all alternatives. However, some energy sources and carriers are better than others for certain applications because of their specific characteristics, such as energy density, ability to store and transport, or refueling time. Hydrogen shows benefits for all these characteristics and is therefore especially suitable, in our view, for long-distance vehicles and for all, that, all other vehicles with high power requirement, such as buses, trucks, and vans. We see especially these markets developing very well in the next five to 10 years in the transport sector. And in addition to this, we also utilize hydrogen in our production. We have speci uh, specially developed um, hydrogen burners 
in order to use hydrogen in our production processes, replacing natural gas. We also developed and use hydrogen forklift in our production and logistic processes. And last but not least, with Aishin, we also utilize stationary hydrogen systems for housing in Japan. So in total, we see a bright future for hydrogen in the coming years for various applications. As we discussed and as you have probably covered in many of your former podcasts, the hydrogen value chain is very wide. So there are several topics that need to be solved together. What seems to be now getting some traction and we believe is fundamental is the move to clean and blue and uh, or green or whatever color you call it, but low carbon hydrogen production. And we think that is going to be probably one of the driving force for the coming years, because if you're capable to deliver uh, clean or green or low carbon hydrogen using either electrolysis with renewable or low carbon energy or using carbon capture and storage technology, then you can decarbonize the downstream sectors uh, with a solid element. And so I think one of the first around the first markets that are going to develop is the market for doing blue low carbon hydrogen and then selling it to usual industry players that usually consume classical hydrogen, petrochemicals, refiners, maybe the steel industry uh, on a certain amount. And those ones will be off-takers of that clean hydrogen subject to the right regulations to make somebody accept the overcost of it. Then the second key places where the markets we believe will develop fast in the coming years is the use of hydrogen for all the very intense, not heavy duty, but intense transportation needs, which means either large captive fleets like taxis or long distance transportation SUVs or buses or trucks, heavy duty or urban delivery trucks, or even forklifts. Today, the forklift industry is one of the most developed in terms of fuel cell use. And you might see that currently during the COVID crisis in the US, almost 25% of the food managed in logistic centers is managed thanks to hydrogen transportation driven systems. Both the Amazons, the, the Walmarts, and the Wegman, and many other key logistic platforms dealing with uh, food on related uh, services are using hydrogen forklifts. So we see each time you have a density of use with a need to use it over many hours over the day and for heavy weight transportation, then we believe hydrogen will come and it's to be done in the next five to 10 years with a difference based on the geography and the policymakers push for it. And Pierre, at the end, I actually want to riff off a little bit of what you were just saying, and I'm going to change up the, uh, the, the order of the questions, if that's okay with you and Stefan. The council appears to be agnostic with regard to the color of hydrogen, with a preference only for low carbon hydrogen. And following in on that, does the council believe that policymakers and investors should treat all hydrogen as equal, or should there be nuances in policy and pricing depending on the, on the hydrogen source? That's a good one. So today we are agnostic, not so much because we already took a position as a council members saying that by 2030, all hydrogen use for mobility applications should be low carbon. So we are not agnostic in the way we want low carbon hydrogen. We also all know that over the very long term, if we move to a sustainable world, we will need hydrogen to be completely used with renewable sources of energy. But in the interim period, it's not possible because you need, uh, you still need a lot of fossil energy. So you need to also give a, a chance to carbon capture and storage technologies also because it's more, um, it's more efficient and it's less expensive today. So here, the policymakers have a role to play. They need first to make sure that either the regulations or the support schemes are there to basically force that demand moves to clean hydrogen. Because if you just say, I want everyone to get clean hydrogen, but nobody wants to pay for it, then it never comes. Today, clean hydrogen is two to three times more expensive than gray hydrogen, whatever people say. Many equipment suppliers sell a very nice dream on the fact that clean hydrogen is going to be soon lower cost than the classic one. But today, that's not the case. You need for that 
intense amount of large-scale investments of electrolysis, you need a continuation of the decrease of the cost of energy, and you need a significant reduction of the capex. It's all possible. Uh, the recent McKinsey report on the cost roadmap is showing that it is possible, but it's going to require close to 70 gigawatts of ag aggregation of capacity installed. And that's not going to take place in two years. So you need the policymakers to enable that shift to take place by forcing demand and by helping the supply. And this is what the council is trying to push forward. So yes, agnostic, but not agnostic, not in the wrong sense. We, we want just to give a chance to all technologies that are making available low carbon hydrogen. And we are also very careful and cautious that all countries progressively use the same methodology to define what is low carbon hydrogen, because there are many ways to get it. And this is part of what the council believe its role is to give a kind of a guideline or suggestions, recommendations of how to calculate what is the carbon content of a given route for making hydrogen uh, low carbon. Maybe just to complement what uh, Pierre Etienne just said, the main focus today is to build up these ecosystems. And part of this ecosystem is to convince consumers that hydrogen is safe and that hydrogen is affordable. And as hydrogen has the future to become a low carbon um, energy carrier in future. And that is essential. And as Pierre just said, that is why we also believe that uh, the future and therefore we need the policy support and also support by the financial community will help us to build up these ecosystems to scale up and with the scale up to reduce the cost and be able also to reduce the cost of uh, blue and green and low carbon hydrogen in future. Today, hydrogen is basically the end game of both the utility and the oil and gas players. And both those players are members of the Hydrogen Council. So if you want to really give it chance to hydrogen, you need to have all the forces pushing in the same direction. So you cannot oppose one against the other. You need to make sure that everyone is pushing for a low carbon hydrogen using its own skills, because we need so much investments, so much push to make this happen that we cannot afford to have division between the members. That's the best low carbon hydrogen. At this stage, we need all. Just following on from some of the themes uh, that we've covered, but, but looking to the latest Hydrogen Council report, one of the quotes that stands out is, uh, supporting policies will be required in key geographies together with investment support of around 70 billion in the lead up to 2030 in order to scale and achieve hydrogen competitiveness. With only 40 billion needed for green hydrogen production costs to fall 70%. Given that the, the hydrogen market is already a $135 billion market a year and growing at approximately you know 6% annually, why should this investment come from government as opposed to industry? And, and, and where do you see these, these kind of relationships between the two kind of falling together? Today, it's a very good business, and Air Liquide is a player in that business. We're having a 2 billion sales in the hydrogen market, but it's grey hydrogen for existing markets. What we are trying to do is to open new markets where all the elements of the puzzle need to become competitive, to become low carbon, and the downstream users, like the automotive industry, needs to shift to electric uh, systems, fuel cell technology, high pressure reservoir. So the total cost of ownership of those new hydrogen applications is today more expensive than the classical solutions. The delta cost is expected to be around 70 billion. And this calculation is basically the number, the, the, the deployment at scale times the delta cost of those scale deployments to the incumbent technologies, the aggregation of it. The faster we go, the smaller it's going to be because the, the faster we'll get the price at the right level. The good message is that it's possible to reach those competitive cost solutions in many applications. But if you wait for industry to do it alone, it means we would need to basically sell hydrogen at a loss. Toyota would have to sell any cars at a loss. Somebody would have to do all the hydrogen distribution stations in the world at a loss, which means tens of billions of dollars per key continent. 
which of course nobody wants to do because today the way the world is driven for all those big companies is that we're driven by financial markets which want some really short-term returns so we can develop some portafolio as we say in french in investing and taking some risk on the technology and early demonstration on some consortium but if you don't get the policy support showing to everyone that this is the way to go with a regulation with either taxes or key CO2 explicit pricing, which gives a penalty to high uh, emitting solutions and dedicated support schemes to accompany a massive deployment, then no industry can take the risk alone. And, and to be very honest, and I will pass over to Stefan, if you take just the example of this infrastructure deployment that we need to do for the transport industry to use hydrogen, It's not so much. If you take Germany, if you take Japan, if you take France, each of those countries would require maybe two billion to be put in stations. But nobody alone can do it. And even in consortia, it's not easy to do it because you don't know if the volume is going to come. You don't know if the OEMs are going to put the, the, the cars on the road. So if you don't have a policymaker above us or next to us who says, I want you to go in that direction, I'm going to pay for some of the delta costs I'm going to help pre-fund those stations' uh, fixed cost, as the METI does in Japan. I'm going to fund half of the stations' cost, as does Germany today. Or I'm going to help you pay the, the, the non-covered cost of the station, as California is doing now. If you don't do that, then the infrastructure doesn't come, then the cars cannot be sold, then the volume cannot be taken up, and then the industry does not shift. Let me add to this... Um Two points from our side. Yes, there is already a very big hydrogen market there. However, there are two elements. One is that hydrogen is expanding to sectors where it was not present so far. And just to give transport as an example, you are developing vehicles, not only passenger cars, but also trucks, buses, vans, forklift. There are trains Next uh, development will be maritime and we discuss uh, aviation. Here, companies develop new technologies on both sides, on the vehicle side, but also on the infrastructure, on the transport and the refueling side. And this requires, as Pierre Etienne said, big investment. And therefore, we need uh, government support in order to make these technologies affordable and attractive for customers. The second difference is that we work towards low-carbon hydrogen, move away from grey hydrogen. And also here we require development of new technology of electrolyzers, which requires uh, government support at the beginning. A quick follow-on question. I suppose, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the kind of the existing market being dominated by fossil fuel generation, shall we say, or production. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how do you see things like a, a carbon tax and, and related kind of uh, policy implements kind of fitting into that? And I suppose, where does the, the council stand on that? There is today no official position from the Hydrogen Council on that. But all the studies we do assume that there will be a CO2 penalty on the cost. And this is using that, that we demonstrated, for example, in the last cost roadmap report that we've done with McKinsey, that carbon capture technologies on the one side, green hydrogen using electrolysis on the other side, would become cheaper than what we call gray hydrogen. Because if you take a penalty cost of around $150 per ton of CO2, which turns into around $1.5 per kilo penalty for hydrogen, which is basically doubling the price of gray hydrogen today at, uh, at the outlet of the steam and reforming, then it's becoming almost competitive today and certainly in the coming years to do it with carbon capture or electrolysis. So there is no explicit requirement from the council per se of carbon tax because there are too many players and, and there would be probably disagreement of the level of the carbon tax. And when does it apply? But everybody knows that if you don't have either an implicit one through the regulations as the one we have in the, in the European Commission or in the US linked to the emissions that are uh, the emission reduction that is expected from the car industry, it, we know that if those regulations are not in place, the thing is not moving. And in some other places, you have carbon taxes 
which are of course helping the shift. So no explicit wish, but all studies are using a clear carbon cost. To complement this, I think we need to create a level playing field. And part of this uh, to remove subsidies on fossil fuels, which are in many countries underway. And the second will be uh, to have some kind of uh, carbon tax. Having said that, um, the critical point is that different sectors have uh, different costs and abatement cost of carbon. And uh, in, in road transport sector, you might uh, need uh, a tax of uh, 100, 150 euro to change customer behavior, while in energy intensive sectors already that is achieved between 20 or 30 euro. So we need to very closely look into the sectors and see what is the abatement cost of uh, to reduce CO2. Okay, so thank you both very much for going through that and for uh, and and for those answers. My question is, how do you, as members of the Hydrogen Council, assess whether your uh, the council itself and the members have been successful in delivering on these outcomes, right? I mean, there's obviously a number of policy prescriptions that you've articulated in the various reports from the Hydrogen Council. So how are you actually measuring success by that? Do you have specific timelines and milestones that you're looking towards? Maybe you could both speak a little bit to that. So there are several ways to look at success. You, you've got the, the direct success of the council attractivity itself, which is measured by the number of people who wants to join. The only fact that we've moved from 13 to 80 members with a split between that uh, of the large players, the more smaller or less engaged players, the fact that we are still around, I think, 80 players knocking at the door in only three years is a good sign. The fact that we have gatherings levels, which are really C-level with mostly CEOs joining together to speak about hydrogen for basically one day is also a significant uh, signal. The third one is not only attributable to us, but I think we played a role. Is, as I said, the number of studies and uh, that have changed their mind and are now acknowledging that hydrogen is part of the game and will take from 15 to 25% of the final energy demand because of the need to abate, uh, to abate uh, or to abate sectors. Third, uh, fourth, sorry, you've got the shift in the policymakers' regulations. Again, we are not the only responsible for it, of course. But the fact that we've set the tone and that we are invited in many different uh, international gatherings to basically plead the cause for hydrogen, I think is a good uh, testimony of the fact that we have succeeded in putting hydrogen in the game. But personally, I will not think that the Hydrogen Council has succeeded unless I see a significant collective tangible investment announcement from many council members all together to give a boost to the sector development. But that's a personal wish, and that's not a council milestone. Yeah, I fully share what Pierre-Tien said, and I would uh, phrase this in, th in three phases. Actually, phase one was to increase the awareness of hydrogen, which I think we succeeded with the increasing interest of policymakers, of investors, of governments. The second phase was to show the potential looking into future And also for me, the third phase that should start now is the implementation, to walk the talk of uh, what we have shown in our studies. Of course, we have a couple of work streams and workshops with deliverables, but I don't think it, we should not go into the details there because I think it could be boring. But we are, you just need to know we are far focused now. We want to make sure safety is considered at the right level by every members. We are continuing to develop a global to make sure that the public opinion is getting aware of hydrogen and its possibilities, which want to become a kind of a resource library of what are the best regulations in terms of norms, standards uh, of implementing stations, developing supply chain, uh, importing and undocking hydrogen and things like that. And fourth, uh, we uh, want to make sure that the council becomes kind of the marketplace for everybody who wants to understand what's going on and get a good visibility of the sector dynamics. That are the key 
main topics we are working on now. Great. Well, well, guys, I think we're we're at the end of our questions. So thank you very much for for taking the time today and uh, taking the time in the middle of a global pandemic to come talk to us about uh, hydrogen. I think it's critical to keep an eye on the future and it's really good that we were, we were able to get this done today. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It was a, what a pleasure. All right, guys. Uh, I think we covered quite a bit of ground with Pierre Etienne and Stefan. So I think we should uh, throw it open to the floor. Patrick, key takeaways, big picture. <laughs> Yeah, big picture, lots, lots to cover. First off, I think the the big one that that stood out is is the decade of of deployment, decade of of implementation and action around hydrogen is really, really strong statement. Lot going on around kind of conversations about how that actually kind of falls out or how that will kind of is developed, but but really strong. That's good. Um, I thought interesting other points, the, 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 the development of the council itself, moving from 30 members to, to 80 members, all of a you know, C-suite or CEO uh, level. Um, these are some of the, the bigger companies in the world, right? So this is, this is a very serious commitment and it shows the, the kind of the weight behind these kind of progressions and growth in the sector. And then I think one of my... Uh, my personal uh, kind of interesting ones was the the conversation that was focused less on, you know, the heavy transport application that we hear a lot about, right? Like heavy trucking, and we've talked about that quite a bit. But actually, the the intensity of use, right? So taxi fleets, bus fleets, even th- talking about like SUVs for long range distance. I thought that was a particularly particularly interesting kind of shift on what we what we kind of typically see in the transport mobility. Uh, use case kind of conversation. So those were those are three big takeaways that I thought were interesting and yeah, we can we can certainly explore those a little bit. I mean maybe just pushing you Patrick on the um like passenger vehicle side. I mean, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before um and it came up in the discussion with Everfuel around the fact that yes, you can, you know, make a commercial business case with a higher cost of hydrogen, but the challenge is kind of getting that critical volume up, getting the scale up to make it commercial and then the fact that the bankability is still very challenging so why did you think that was particularly interesting what was kind of I, I wasn't so clear on that one to be honest I thought that was where maybe I I disagreed a little bit with some of the commentary no it's 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 an interesting um, an interesting dynamic to, to think about right where rather than thinking of a single vehicle that's going to you know use you know, uh, or to, to run for a long duration or has a, a particular weight load that it has to carry when you're talking about, you know, a fleet of trucks or, or, or a fleet of taxis, you know, it's actually the volume of vehicles and the duration that maybe they run rather than just the individual vehicle. So it, it kind of shifts the, the kind of potential, I guess, uh, cost point in, in terms of the, the kind of the outset, right? What infrastructure, how do you fuel it? Well, maybe you have it in a uh, your parking lot or in your bus station and, and overnight you refuel your buses and then they run for the day. Uh, what that does for your kilogram cost, I think uh, that'd be an interesting thing to, to have a conversation about. And, and I think that'd be an interesting thing to examine. Um, but I think one last, one last kind of nugget on it is that, you know, we've looked at I think kind of uh, mobility and personal mobility kind of solutions from almost a similar kind of standpoint to to what we have today around you know you drive to your gas station you fill up your car well well are there dynamics around refueling or or structure of 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 kind of supply that change if you if you have a different kind of setup or a, a volume of vehicles and you know this is similar maybe to the dynamics you see with battery electric vehicles and maybe andrew you can speak to this a bit but like you know charging at home or charging passively when when not in use rather than that kind of drive to your station fill up your car well so firstly i think what i'm going to do here uh patrick is dodge your question uh and throw throw things over to chris to say stay a little bit on our our uh schedule which is to say Chris, what were what were the key topics that that you found most interesting, uh, and your key takeaways as well? Uh, sure. So, I mean, I think um, Patrick sort of was addressing maybe sort of the more macro themes. I guess mine would be maybe more specific points that were interesting to me. 
So I thought one thing that was interesting was um, Pierre Tien talking about specific deliverables for the for the Hydrogen Council, what he would consider to be success uh, as sort of a, on a personal level. I thought it was quite interesting, um, you know, just to kind of get into some of that, especially the fact that um, personal his personal view of success was that also you would see significant investments in hydrogen from the council members and not just from governments. And I thought that was a good, uh, positive and interesting takeaway. Um I thought there were two implicit um, assessments that both actually drew attention to that I, I wasn't so aware of before this conversation, which is around the implicit carbon price that is set by the Hydrogen Council when they do a lot of the analysis that they put together. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and also the fact that when they talk about uh, the amount of investment needed, so in their latest report, they talk about $70 billion needed to scale up green hydrogen between 2020 and 2030. What was interesting is that nuance that that's actually the delta. So that's not, um, you know, how much investment is going into the hydrogen industry total globally. That's not, you know, existing uh, projects that are already planned or revamps of existing projects or things like that. That's just new additional investments. So I thought that those were interesting nuances. And I think the final point um, that, you know, I, maybe segueing a little bit into Patrick's theme of getting Andrew to answer questions for a change was on this idea of uh, grey now, green later, right? You know, the idea that we just start with something that gets people onto a new technology pathway and then we we make that greener. And in many senses, that argument that was being made at the end um, is an argument that we saw very strongly in the battery electric vehicle industry, where people said in the early days, well, actually, the grid might have lots of coal and natural gas on it. So surely charging my EV with that is actually worse for the environment than, you know, using a super fuel efficient internal combustion engine vehicle. And the battery electric vehicle argument always was, well, no, we need to get people on the grid and then green the grid. And that's the right process to get scaling up going on. Uh, and so I just kind of would be interesting, Andrew, to get your take on that, because that to me is is a really contentious area. And certainly for the hydrogen industry has quite a lot of people arguing internally around actually is that the right approach do you just need to get projects off the ground and the color of hydrogen doesn't matter or do you have to get that right from the very beginning for this to work yeah well thank you guys for cornering me on that uh i tried my best to get out of this one but no uh so look i i mean i think to to address the questions in turn right um i do think that the actual charging applications to to patrick's patrick's uh original question the model for charging for charging or refueling cars in this instance or vehicles in this instance, I think is going to be dramatically different, particularly in the battery electric vehicle uh, sector. But that I think the most dramatic change there that we'll see is in the personal passenger vehicle side, like private and individually owned vehicles, in the sense that those are very much more likely to be charged at home the majority of the time, as far as the data shows, it's already between 80 and 90% in most markets where people have BEVs, they're charging 80 to 90% of the time at home and really spending almost no time at, at public fast charging sites. But you know, that can shift depending on the on the market and depending on availability. So that in and of itself, I think that's where you'll see a huge change in charging behavior and how and how people approach uh, refueling for vehicles. I don't think that's and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the case that you would see with uh, hydrogen, right? I mean, I think it would be not such a dramatic shift for fleet operators uh, to be operating or uh, maintaining their own sort of refueling stations uh, on site or at central hubs for their for their fleets. Whereas I think personal passenger vehicles for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles personal passenger vehicles in the hydrogen fuel cell space, those are more likely to be done to be refueled at a at a public charging station, much like a gas station we see today. So I mean, I think the transition there is more dramatic on the on the battery electric side. Um and maybe just pushing you then on, on the kind of gray now, green later piece. Right. Yeah. Forgot about that part of the question. Um I think what Pierre Etienne and Stefan were saying probably is the right right approach. And I think that makes sense. I mean, I think at the battery electric side, we are still seeing, you know, government support, we are still seeing subsidies uh, to make pricing price parity to level the playing field in that space, because battery electric vehicles still remain in comparable vehicle classes, 
more expensive for you know for the average consumer. So I do think it makes sense that you're going to have to see some sort of support and intervention and price equalization based on on policy. So I mean, Patrick, again, getting your take on it. I mean, it is really contentious right now. We are seeing this come up a lot in the UK market, which is people have consistently made the case grey hydrogen is cheaper. Therefore, we should start with grey hydrogen, get projects up and running with grey hydrogen, then move to blue or green. That is a very common message you hear from a lot of people in the space. Uh, And then the flip side of that is people saying, but actually from a public perspective, the public don't understand why they should be going down a route that seems to just be rewarding and sustaining the fossil industry if they can't see the clear transition. And actually it's far more important to avoid hydrogen being seen as a smokescreen for the oil and gas industry and actually being seen as a clean technology, a real renewable solution and therefore you have to start green and i just thought it'd be good to get your kind of take on that because you know pietien took a very clear view on that and uh you know i thought it was worth discussing because it is important and it does come up in the conversation that the hydrogen council raises on these issues yeah and i think your uh, comparison with the electricity uh, grid you know as you, as you mentioned i think specifically the, the battery electric vehicle kind of comparison is an appropriate one, right? Because in a sense, you know, folks often often cite this. You know, hydrogen is an energy carrier, right? So you can you can have green molecules, or you know, as we've categorized them, blue or gray molecules. At the end of the day, the molecule is the same. So this is a mechanism or a tool by which you can actually decarbonize your systems. So I'm certainly sympathetic to the the idea that we have a transition within the hydrogen production uh, kind of uh, sector, as well as a transition within all the the follow-on or or use case sectors. Look, let's take it from a practical point. The vast majority of production today is is grey. Uh, in an ideal world, we would prefer to have that be green, but but realistically, the pathway to getting that to, to have lower carbon is to, to move it towards a blue production setup as we scale the uh, renewable energy resources required to produce green molecules at, at, at scale. So this is this is a it's a highly complex challenge. And then you get into you know, the, the restrictions or the constraints around what kind of resource scale is required to produce at a cost-effective level. You get into the, the challenge that you have, you know, particularly here in the United States, when you have extremely cheap natural gas. And uh, uh, for, for folks uh, who are listening to this, we are, we are day, the day after the uh, projected negative $35 barrel of oil. Um, you know, like this is a very uh, significant kind of challenge when you have very, very, very cheap fossil fuels to compete with. So, you know, uh, if I were if I were picking horses in this game, I would be saying that places with abundant renewables uh, or abundant renewable potential and high natural gas costs in particular uh, will see a, a scaling of green hydrogen production faster than places where you have very, very low natural gas prices and perhaps a, a, a limited capacity to produce renewables. But whatever way we, we square this circle, there is, a, there is a transition aspect to it. And, and critically, beyond anything else, and, and I think this, to, 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 to Piatian's point, uh, was around ensuring that we have the least possible carbon being produced by producing hydrogen at every point along that chain. So that transition mechanism is, is really, really front and center, which is very good to hear, but also it's where, where the rubber meets the road in, in one particular aspect of this. What about you, Chris? What's, the, what's, what's your take as, a, you know, as, as somebody who's looking at you know, these sort of projects and particularly in the UK, what the focuses are? Yeah, I mean, I think from my side, what, what is interesting about the Hydrogen Council is um, you know, this argument that everyone needs to be pulling together and making the cases together. And you see that in the UK with things like the Hydrogen Task Force, where ITM uh, Power got together with Shell and BP and a couple of others. Um, you know, interestingly, outside of the existing um, trade associations that already were in place in the UK. Um, and it just kind of emphasizes this point that the electrolysis industry and the green hydrogen through reforming of um, bioenergy or, or waste um 
waste streams also does see that it needs to be pushing as part of a wider uh, sort of hydrogen consortia. I, th- I think what's most remarkable about you know the hydrogen council in some ways is this kind of fact that actually you do see these really large incumbent uh, businesses, the air liquids, the air products, shells, BPs, etc., working with sort of challenger companies and companies that are sort of disrupting their core business model. Uh, I actually cannot think of, and it'd be interesting to get your perspectives, guys, of any other renewable sector that ever had something quite like the Hydrogen Council formed. I cannot think of anything in the wind or solar or battery or geothermal or any of the renewable technologies that's quite like the Hydrogen Council in its membership, its goals, and the way that it advocates. And that, to me, is quite telling. The fact that it is only this industry that I can think of that has really done that within the renewable world, brought together such a large consortium of businesses, including real incumbents and challengers, who broadly are pushing together in the same general direction, is very unusual. Can you name one? I mean, I genuinely can't name an alternative. Put on the spot, uh, one does not come to mind, but maybe Patrick has an idea. I think the, the point that you're making is is around the, the incumbency factor, the, the fact that you have the people who are producing today in the room assisting the disruption of the market in a sense, right? Which is definitely a little more unusual and a little bit stranger and also probably a product of the, the the challenges that come from migrating from you know a pure industrial gases market into a more consumer open or exposed or industrially generally used uh, kind of market because the the incumbent sector is is fairly specific and and, and fairly targeted um, and now we're seeing broadening of the use case so different actors new actors kind of emerging into the space um, it's a very, it's a very in, inspiring and interesting uh, opportunity, right, to to accelerate this uh, this particular effort. But it's also quite unusual, right? I mean, I think part. I mean, I'm you know reflecting on this more, and it's something that you know, uh, as always on these shows, there's more questions than we have time for. But it is kind of worth asking the question of you know, in the renewables market, we tended to see policy and advocacy was done on a very national level because generally electrons are not really exported very far. I mean, in Europe and in some markets, yes, there are interconnections, but it it typically is still done on a national, local level when we think of policy and these kinds of associations. I'm wondering if what is unique about the Hydrogen Council is that because hydrogen is a molecule and because therefore you have this kind of ability to produce hydrogen in somewhere like Australia or South Africa or Morocco or Chile and then ship it around the world, um, there is that kind of need to push and pull multiple different countries and policy frameworks and companies at the same time to get to a much bigger scale faster than would be the case if you were another renewable technology. And I don't know how much of that is, I don't know how true that is, but it just is very striking to me. I mean, it is obviously a very Western and China dominated consortium. I think that's also something we haven't really talked about but for example there's not a lot of representation from south america or from africa or even really within sort of south or um south asia for example that's in the consortia which is which is also something notable um you know and whether that changes i I suspect probably will do um but it is interesting and again on the funding side there's five uh, major uh, financial institutions uh i believe four of them are french which is also quite interesting. There's no American banks on the list. There's no uh, Chinese banks on the list, no Middle East banks on the list. So it's, it's a very interesting and unusual structure. And I guess it's partly organic. It's partly how people engage. But I do think given how influential the Hydrogen Council is, given how closely its words are followed and given how much um, you know it's done to drive the agenda, understanding its composition, where its members are from, why it feels the need to operate at a global level when that hasn't been the case for other renewable technologies and why it chooses to pursue a kind of pathway style approach of you know gray gray now green later but bringing everybody into the fold early on so that all these companies incumbents and challenges pushing together it is worth is i think is worth flagging here it is unusual it is very rare to see and I think it has profound implications for why the industry is evolving the way it is. 
Yeah, I think I think just one quick reflection, and 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 you're absolutely right, flagging the kind of geographic and and I suppose some of the kind of region regional concentrations. Right, it's a yet point. You know, keeping a pathway which is engageable by by multiple different actors in different spaces in different regions in different markets with all the challenges that we know exist in developing this space across any of the use cases. It it probably allows it to be a very broad kind of group of people who can engage and assist and support each other in making that that transition one more tangible, but also helping accelerate it. And it allows for lessons learned across different regions and markets. So I agree entirely. It's 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 a fantastic entity and organization that that is offering mechanism, I think, to accelerate this market and to coordinate the acceleration of this market in a way that we probably haven't seen anywhere else on a global scale. Interesting. Very optimistic, guys. I'm not used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Some optimism needed. And that's it for us today here at Everything About Hydrogen. Many thanks to our guests from the Hydrogen Council, Pierre Etienne Franck, Vice President of the Hydrogen Energy World Business Unit at Air Liquide, and Stefan Herbst, General Manager at Toyota Motor Europe, for speaking with us today. It was fantastic having them on the show, and we hope to hear more from them and the Hydrogen Council in the future. Thank you to Patrick and Chris, as always, for their stellar co-hosting abilities and hard work. And speaking of Chris and Patrick, though they've dropped off the call and I'm recording this separately, I will do a bit of shameless promotion on their behalves and recommend that those of you who would like to hear more about the hydrogen sector from them, check out the recording of their recent virtual panel discussion hosted by Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, in which they discussed the prospects of hydrogen as a clean energy vector. Chris and Patrick were joined on the panel by our good friend Marcus Whitlawner from McKinsey and Company for a wide-ranging discussion about clean hydrogen technologies moderated by Professor Marco Dell'Aquila, the founder and chairman of Inspiratia and professor at Johns Hopkins SAIS Europe in Bologna, Italy. You can find a link to the recording on YouTube in the show notes for today's episode. It was a really excellent discussion and I hope many of you will have a listen at some point. Also, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch, please send us an email, podcast at inspiratia.com or find us on Twitter at About Hydrogen. And lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 